chapters of Samuel, uh, we see a three-chapter break here in, uh, in this book. And we know that Samuel was a young child. Years have passed since uh, that story. Uh, years have passed, gone on. And uh, we're going to focus on the Ark of the Covenant for three chapters. The Ark was a piece of furniture that was built in the wilderness as the children of Israel were leaving from Egypt on their way to Canaan. Uh, it represented the presence of the Lord. We'll talk about that tonight. It stayed in the tabernacle behind a curtain, could only be moved and accessed under very strict guidelines. The high priest, who we believe to be Eli was that person once a year would go in and offer on the day of atonement the sacrifice for the sin of the people so when we see that it would be removed at times as they would move from place to place throughout their wilderness journey and as we see tonight sometimes it would be carried into battle as a sign of God's presence with the people and on their dependence and show their dependence on the Lord for his provision. But here, something's going to take place that shakes the people to their core. So let's look at chapter 4, 1 Samuel, and verse number 1. If you're taking notes tonight, you can write down number 1, the battle. The battle. Let's look at the first couple verses here. 1 Samuel cha- excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the, ark, uh, hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant, the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now let's stop right there and just make some comments. After seeing in the verse, verse number one, that Samuel is now the prominent figurehead uh, at the tabernacle, we see that war has come to Israel. Uh, we see a very common enemy that we'll talk about later in 1 Samuel uh, that fought Israel for many, many years to come in the Philistines. We know about them from the story of David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine of the Philistine army. Uh, We know that the ark is currently located in a place called Shiloh. We have a map that will be on the screen uh, for you tonight. You can see up in the top, Shiloh is mentioned. And you see where the Ark of the Covenant started and where it began its journey all the way over to Aphek where the battle is taking place. And Aphek and Ebenezer is where that took place. And uh, as the Israelites would be defeated, the army would move all the way down to Ashdod to Gath and eventually it would go back towards Jerusalem. Now that's where Samuel is. He is in Shiloh. Uh, Eli and his family are in Shiloh. But we see that the Philistines went to battle and Israel is engaged in battle against them. But I think it's interesting how it's worded for us in verse number 2. It says, the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. The Israelites were God's people And the opposition came against them. They didn't go out looking for a fight, but rather the opposition came to them. 
and say, Pastor, why is that significant? Now think about when you were in grade school. When you were in grade school, you were out on the playground with all your friends and all your classmates. And we all knew that one kid that nobody was supposed to mess with. That one bully that you just did not approach. You didn't share stuff with them. You didn't talk to them. You didn't make eye contact with them. You didn't mess with them. Why? Because if you made eye contact with them or you approached them, you automatically became the target. You became public enemy number one to this bully. Now think about this for just a minute. You knew that you were supposed to stay away from them because you knew that they were bigger than you were. The world is that kid on the playground. And here in our story tonight, the Philistines are that kid on the playground. The Israelites were not engaging the Philistines. Rather, the Philistines come to pick on the Israelites. We as believers today, we're not supposed to mess with the world because the world is bigger than we are. Now, here's the thing. We know that the New Testament tells us greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. But it talks about who's in us, not us. We know that we are nothing. He is everything. We know that we are nothing compared to the world. The world is bigger than us. That's why every chance Paul gets, he tells us to be ready for spiritual warfare. Remember in, first, uh, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, because of that, Take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. If the world was not bigger than us, then why do we need armor? See, if the world was not bigger than us, we wouldn't have to be ready for battle every day. But the world continually comes against God's people. Over and over. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The Israelites had God on their side, but it did not stop the enemy from attacking them. And it does not stop the attacks that we face either. Just because we call ourselves Christians, the world doesn't, ooh, oh, they don't do that to us. They say, so what? what is that, why does that make you any more special than the rest of us? C.H. Spurgeon said, When thou sleepest, think that thou art resting on the battlefield. When thou walkest, suspect an ambush in every hedge. William Gurnall said, In heaven we shall appear, not in armor, but in robes of glory. But here, these are to be worn night and day. We must talk, work, and sleep in them, or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. See, the problem with the battle was the end result of their fighting. The end result of verse number 2, they were losing. 4,000 soldiers died. They take account, but why were they losing? Because in this battle, they were fighting in their own strength because they would not address their own sin. They had a problem, and they had become so used to living in the flesh, they didn't realize that God was no longer with them. We see in verse 3 and 4, it becomes even worse. Look at verse 3. And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel, now, sad state of affairs. 
when the leadership has bought into this mentality that we don't need God, we're doing fine on our own. According to the battle, they weren't doing fine on their own. 4,000 lives lost. But look what they said. Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today? Hey, God's supposed to be on our side. Now they're blaming God for their problem. And isn't it interesting that when we get in a mess, the first person we lash out at is not the problem. The first person that we lash out at is not the problem. And they lash out at God. And what was their response? They could have said, the Lord has allowed this to happen. Let's get on our knees and pray and ask God for help. But that's not what they did. They said, let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us. And here's the wording. That when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. The problem was they had substituted God's presence with a replacement. They substituted. See, the ark represented the presence of God, but it wasn't God. It was a symbol of God. It wasn't a replacement for God. It represented God's presence. And we see this all the time. The church is not God. But how many people worship coming to church? Uh, man, if I, just, if I get to come to church, I'll be spiritual. That has nothing to do with it. If I can just come to church, I'll, be a, I'll walk with the Lord and I'll spend time with Him. But see, church attendance is a small fraction of your life when compared to the whole of your life. We see it when I believe that coming to church will replace my quiet time during the week. Well, if, I, if pastor will just spoon feed me, I don't need to read my Bible at home. That's not what I'm here for, by the way. You, at some point, you got to pick up the fork for yourself and feed yourself. When listening to Christian music replaces a relationship with the Lord. Man, I love my, my spirit FM. You know, I just love listening to good, godly music. But I don't read my Bible. There's a problem. When serving Jesus is more important than sitting at Jesus' feet and learning from Him. When I... Don't value the relationship anymore, but still feel obligated to do something for him. I'm living out of my labor instead of out of my love. There's the difference. These people had gotten so accustomed to the motions that they had forsaken the relationship. Hey, as long as I just come Sunday morning and I get involved in a growth group and I come Wednesday night and I do discipleship, God will accept that. But if you don't have a relationship with God, God is not impressed. God desires a walk with His people. A conversation. A manner of living. He wants a relationship with us. And Paul warned Timothy about this ideology in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5. He was talking about the last days. He's talking about problems within the church. And he said this. A problem would be those who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. You know what that is? Those who look the part, but aren't the part. And man, we see it. We see it. And at times, sadly, we are the part. When we come in and, man, man I, just, I just screamed at my kids on the way in. Don't you say what I said on the way to church because we're supposed to be spiritual. You know, we do it all the time. Romans chapter 8. Verse number 8, 
So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. When I serve, when I live in the flesh, there is no possible way that I can please the Lord. So are we serving in the spirit or serving in the flesh? The people go to get the ark and they bring it into the camp and immediately the Philistines start sweating. Look at verse number 7. And the Philistines were afraid for they said, God is come into the camp. They understood what the ark represented. They knew it. It said, and they said, woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing here before. This has never happened. Woe is us. Verse 8, woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods. These are the gods that smote the Egyptians. They knew their history. They knew what God had done for them in the past. But look at verse 9. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. See, they knew what it represented, but they knew that they still had to fight. They understood that fighting was more important than fear. Now, hey, here it is today, church. Fighting our spiritual battle is more important than being afraid of the battle. Fighting and getting involved in the work is more important than fear. Fighting is more important. And we could say the same things as they did in verse number 9. Be strong. Quit yourselves like men. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, Paul says something similar. And he says, watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men, be strong. And in verse 14, that same chapter, he says, let all your things be done with charity, with love. Well, I'm supposed to fight, but I'm supposed to fight with the right attitude. Hey, I'm not fighting just for the sake of fighting. That's belligerence. I'm fighting with the right attitude in mind. I'm fighting for the right things. I'm fighting passionately over the things that are the most important. Dictionary.com defines the phrase, uh, quit yourselves like men. It says, be brave or tough enough to deal with a difficult or unpleasant situation. Be, be brave or tough enough to deal with a difficult or unpleasant situation. He's telling them, these leaders are telling the Philistine soldiers, man up. Man up. Be brave. Be tough. So in our spiritual life, our spiritual walk with the Lord, can we man up? Can we be strong? Can we stand fast in the faith when times get tough? We see, number one, the battle. But number two, we see the blunder. Look at verse number 10. And the Philistines fought, which is more than what the Israelites were doing. The Israelites are over here cheering, yeah, we got the ark. And the Philistines said, we don't care about your celebration. We're here to fight. And they fought. And Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. 4,000. Let's go get the ark. It'll save us. Bring it in. Failure. 30,000 not only did they win, there were 30,000 casualties, including, look at verse number 11, and the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. Not only 30,000 slain, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Not only did they win 30,000 slain, Hophni and Phinehas dead, they stole the ark. They took the ark of the covenant. 
And picture this man in verse number 12. There ran a man of Benjamin out of the army, came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes rent and with earth upon his head. This was a sign of mourning. He's running to the city to bear the news, covered in all of this dirt, dirty, clothes torn as a sign that this is bad news. The situation's gone from bad, 4,000, to worse, 30,000. But that wasn't the worst part. He comes upon a man sitting at the gate. Now we don't really know where Eli is sitting, what he's sitting on. But in verse number 12 it says, He sat upon a seat by the wayside watching. For his heart trembled for the ark of God. Now here's the sad part. He's no longer mentioned like we see him mentioned the first time he's mentioned. Remember in chapter number 1 and verse number 9, the very first time we see Eli's name mentioned, he has a title. It says, chapter 1 and verse number 9, Now Eli, the priest, sat upon a gate, uh, sat upon a seat by the post of the temple of the Lord. When we first see Eli, he's Eli the priest. Eli the priest. Eli the priest. Over and over. But here, when we get to chapter 4, he's just plain Eli. Why is that significant? Because he no longer has the influence or authority that he once had. His inability to tame his son's wicked behavior had a lot to do with that. But his state is different here in verse number 13. It says that his heart trembled for the ark of God. What was it? Why was he so upset? Could it have been that he knew what the stakes were? Could it have been that he knew something that everybody else didn't know? Remember the man of God that came to him in chapter 2, verse 24 or 34, excuse me, and says, And this shall be a sign unto thee that shall come upon thy two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. He also knew verse 4 of this chapter, how the people had come back in and said, We need the ark, we need the ark. And how that his two sons, in verse number 4, mentioned the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Could it have even been that Eli and Phinehas were the two who were carrying the ark out to battle? They went right by Eli on the way out of town. Hey, Dad, we'll be back. He knew the prophecy that had been told to him. And the ark is now gone. Eli is getting ready to hear the news for himself. But the ark is gone. What they had lost in spirit years before with their action, their attitudes, now would be gone as a representation of God's presence. See, the ark was just a picture of the presence of God. But now the people would see that God's presence wasn't with them. They were getting ready to experience a period of time without God. What would it take in my life and in your life for you and I to notice that God's not with us? That God is not with us because of our sin. James chapter 1 and verse 14 says, But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Thomas Manton said, first we practice sin, 
then defend it, then boast of it. And that is a picture of America in 2022. Practice sin, then defend sin, and now we boast in it. And how, I don't know how much more fitting you can be to go with the statement than it's called pride. Boast in it. Hey, it's something we're proud of. It's dangerous ground. And the people got what they wanted, but they lost what they had. How often do we get what we want, but the thing we need the most is what we lose in the process? Uh, no, I, you know, Pastor, uh, this marriage didn't work out, so I got a new partner, but I lost my testimony in the process. Uh, you know, I, I told my boss off, Pastor, but you lost a way to support your family. Uh, hey, I pleased my flesh, but you gave in to sin. All of those times, so we need the Lord's presence more than anything else. Jesus said, without me, he can do nothing. We can't function without him. We can't get out of bed in the morning without him. You can't take a breath without him. He wills it and allows it. But would we give up our pride and our jealousy or our bitterness or our anger or envy to have God's presence? It's amazing that God saves us from the power of sin and from all of these addictions at times and struggles and strongholds. And we trade them in only to pick up secret sins that nobody knows about. That we hide behind a shirt and tie on Sunday morning. That we hide behind a nice outfit. and Hey, nobody knows about who I really am on the inside. Oh man, I don't drink or smoke or cuss or uh, I'm not unfaithful anymore, but now I have all these secret things, these besetting sins the Bible talks about, Uh, the things that nobody knows, the greed and the anger and the discontentment and the pride. See, the season of Christmas should realign our priorities, shouldn't it? It should realign who we are, the fact that we had a Savior that came for us, and He died for all of our sins, not just The ones that people know about are for all of them. Even the ones that we keep hidden from others. He died for all of them. But will the season of Christmas realign our priorities? The blessings, the blunder, or excuse me, the battle, the the blunder, and then number three, the bulletin. Look at verse 14. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What meaneth the noise of this tumult? Hey, why, why is everybody upset and uh, you've been running telling people and I hear people shouting and uh, I don't know what's going on. Uh, the author tells us in verse 15, now Eli was 90 and 8 years old and his eyes were dim that he could not see. Now remember in chapter 3 when Samuel comes in, here am I, I, I know you called me Eli. The Bible tells us that his eyes were dim but now we see that he's blind. He's older now, he's blind, and he cannot see. He can't discern, not only spiritually, but now physically can't discern what's going on. Verse 16, and the man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And he said, what is there done, my son? He's getting ready to hear the news. And you can almost sense that Eli already knows what's going on. Already knows He had already been told that his sons were going to die together the same day. They left together with the ark. But what about the ark? 
what had happened. He's in poor health now. and The Bible says that not only he cannot see, but he's a heavy man. It says he asked what the commotion is. The man's already told all the people, already shared, and there's crying. And Eli hears that his sons have died and the ark was taken. And the news was simply confirmation that the message was from God. Remember in chapter 3, when Samuel relayed the information back to Eli after Eli prompted him, what was Eli's response? It's the Lord. And that's the Lord's word. It's, it's confirmation that God has not only spoken to me, but God has spoken to Samuel. And now God is validating his word. In one day, the house of Eli would be removed from any spiritual significance from that point forward. He hears the news in verse 17. It says, Thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. And it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God that he fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck broke, and he died. For he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. See, there's be no one else, as the man of God said. There was not going to be anybody else in his family. No spiritual lineage for Eli anymore from that point forward. Chapter 2, verse 35, the man of God says to Eli, I will raise me up a faithful priest. I'll raise somebody up in your place, Eli, because of your unfaithfulness. You know, what would your, yours and my response be to this kind of news? You know, God is literally telling Eli that he can't use him. That he's unusable. Death would certainly seem to be a welcome thing in that place. Where God can no longer use you, knowing that you're unusable to the Lord. See, we know that our lives have purpose and they have meaning. But what if we knew that it didn't have purpose and meaning? A.W. Tozer said, the purpose of God isn't to save us from hell. The purpose of God is to make us like Christ. That is his goal. We have a purpose. And if that purpose can't be completed, then we have no further reason to be alive. We see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we, the church, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. See, you and I have a purpose, but are we fulfilling that purpose? Are we maximizing that reason for living? And how are we doing that? We see the battle, and we see the blunder, the bulletin, and lastly tonight we see the birth. Look at verse number 19. It says, And his daughter-in-law, talking about Eli, Phineas' wife was with child, near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, and her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast born a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel. Because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed for Israel for the ark of God is taken. And with so many people that died during this chapter and this story, news travels to the home of Phineas. His wife is great with child when she hears that her father-in-law, her husband, all of these things have happened. News about the ark. She goes into labor. In the midst of death, there's life. 
and it's immediately followed by another death. This mother dies shortly after giving birth, and all of a sudden this child is an orphan. No father, no mother, no grandfather. All of a sudden is an orphan. But before she dies, the mother names the child, and the name is significant to us. Ichabod is the name, and it means the glory is gone. Where is the glory? The glory is missing. The word for glory is the Hebrew word kavod. And it means heaviness or honor. The honor of the Lord. The heaviness of who He is. It's interesting that the word heavy used in verse 18 to describe Eli is the same root word as we see for glory in, here in verse number 21. The exact same word, kaved, kabod, the same root word. See, for Eli, for years, he represented the glory of the Lord to the people. You couldn't see God's glory, but you could see the representative of the Lord. You could see that person, that thing that represented God's presence. And for the people going to the tabernacle, to the temple, it was Eli. He was the glory of the Lord. But where was the glory of the Lord here at the end of the chapter? The glory of the Lord was dead on the side of the road outside Shiloh. Eli was dead. Where was the next closest representation of the glory of the Lord? It was heading to the land of the Philistines. Taken, the ark taken down the road as a trophy of their victory. Where is the glory of the Lord? You know, God's glory is missing. And this birth would signify that God was gone. This is the lowest spiritual point in the history of the children of Israel. The lowest. The only time when they signified God's gone. God's glory is missing. See, the prophets would talk about it for hundreds and thousands of years after this. And the people would see it for themselves. Louis Giglio said, We go from Malachi to Matthew in one page of our scriptures. But that one piece of paper that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament represents 400 years of history. 400 years where there wasn't a prophet. 400 years where God's voice wasn't heard. And that silence was broken with the cry of a baby on Christmas night. Jesus was foretold in John chapter 1 verse 14. He's called the Word. and said the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Jesus said on the way to the cross in John 17, verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So tonight, where is the glory of the Lord in our lives? Are we doing anything to reveal who He is his glory in our lives so that people look at us and they don't see us. They see him shining through us. They don't see our life or, and say, well, I wonder what, why, why do they act just like I do? They say they go to church. 
Why do they talk like I do? Why do they do all the things that I do? Because they say that they're a Christian. Why are they exactly like me? There's no difference. But there should be. If we say who we are and we are who we are, there should be a difference in who we are. Do people look at our lives and ask that same question? Where's the glory? Where's the glory of the Lord? Could Ichabod be our name like this little boy's name? As they would see over the next couple chapters that the Ark of the Covenant was gone. And God's presence had left them, but he wasn't gone for good. Eventually it would return and God would work in a mighty way. See, just because he had left Israel didn't mean that God was dead. And God is getting ready to show the Philistines who he was. Because when he can't reveal it in our lives, he'll reveal it to those who are not his own. And when we don't notice and we don't pay attention, he'll show others who he is. And he does that in the Philistines' lives. Where is the glory? Can people see the glory of the Lord in us? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your presence. Lord, help us to search our hearts and ensure that you can be present with us. Lord, that there's nothing between our heart and you. Lord, help us to focus this Christmas season on making sure that the glory can be revealed in our hearts and lives. Lord, we love you and thank you for your love for us. Please use our lives in a special way and help people to see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're getting ready to go to our prayer time.